You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Now before we get into that, if you're listening your uh, podcast, which is pretty much the only way you can listen, right now at least, you probably noticed that if uh, things went quite a plan, the opening has been a bit different. We've decided to make a little change here. I got someone who does all the sound work for me and he put that together. And so if you really like it, let me know. I'm just experimenting here. If you say, hey, please go back to the old, let me know that also, okay? I mean, this is this is your show as well. I want to find out what you want to do. Um, this is the month of January in 2017. We decided to not have some shows in at the end of December because who wants to be doing an interview on Christmas Eve and they could be with our family and pretty much the same deal for New Year's Eve. But we're back in the swing of things and in January, I really like to devote that to abortion, since this is the month of Roe v. Wade and such. And for that, I went to the Krishna Projects Alliance. I found three people there who are willing to come on the show. You might not have heard of them, but hey, this is a chance for them to get themselves out there, get their work more well-known. And then the other guest I've get found is not a member of CAA, but is a very well-known author on the topic. And so he's going to be on on the 21st. And... I'm not going to tell you who that is just yet, okay? But today, we've got a Ty Benbo on here. He is a professor and emerging author originally from Muncie, Indiana. He graduated with a BA in psychology from Wabash College in 2008 and later received his MDiv from Anderson University School of Theology in 2011. He currently serves in the church ministry department at Warner University in Lake Wales, Florida, where he teaches courses on understanding the Old Testament and life of Christ. His debut novel, I'm Not Real, was published by Charisma Media in Lake Mary, Florida. I'm Not Real was released on January 22, 2016, the 43rd anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Ty, his wife Riley, and daughter Berkeley currently reside in Winter Haven, Florida. So, Ty, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nick. Now, since my audience probably doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, as it, as it pertains to the abortion issue, um, that story for me goes back to the year 2009. Um, I began seminary in the fall of 2008, and um, one of my father's really good friends and mentors um, was a pastor at a church in Wichita, Kansas. And so um, when this man found out that I was pursuing uh, a work in vocational ministry, he offered to uh, give me an internship at his church in Wichita, Kansas, um, which led me there for the summer of 2009. Um, now, to, to most people, that's not a big deal. Um, however, for Wichita, Kansas, that, that's a major deal because the summer of 2009 
um, was when abortionist Dr. George Tiller was shot to death inside the annex of mm. his church, Reformation Lutheran Church, on the east side of Wichita, Kansas. And I can vividly remember as an intern that summer um, just really having to struggle with the, the, the incredible amount of discord and frustration and, um, and physical and emotional violence that occurred in Wichita over that issue. I mean, that got picked up nationwide. And I remember being particularly broken by that issue um, and not even knowing why. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Caucasian male um, from Midwest Indiana. I'm not normally the, the kind of guy who, who invests in something like abortion, but for whatever reason, it really hit me hard. Um, and that began about a six-year process of me studying the issue deeply and ultimately, to me, writing a novel on the, on the issue, uh, a novel that you um, introduced the audience to just a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have to say, I, I didn't find out about the novel in enough time to get to read it and don't have a copy, so this is a one rare case audience where I didn't do the reading here. But I remember the case of when Tiller was shot. I was working at the Christian Research Institute in Charlotte at the time, and it, it left us a quite big debate going on sometimes about how do we handle his kinds of issues and such. I mean, was justice served or things like that, you know? That, that sounds a lot like what, what Wichita's discussions were like at that time, too. And mm-hmm. I remember walking away from that moment, Nick, and, and really feeling like um, something really significant was being missed by both sides of the spectrum. Um, on one hand, um, the unfortunate death of Dr. Tiller does not in any way condone um, abortion, but at the same time, the acts of his murderer also do not condone um, the work of the pro-life movement. And so by the time I left that summer, I, I remember thinking that, that neither side was really doing a very good job of discussing this issue, um, which is far more pervasive than anybody in America realizes. You know, I'm finding it interesting also talking about him being killed, not just at a church, but at his church specifically that that usually doesn't connect with most of us to think that someone whose name was often called I think Tiller the Killer would be at a church regularly. That's true, and that 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 actually speaks to um, why the American Christian and really, frankly, the Christian across the world, which I hope to talk about a little bit later today, needs to understand the ins and outs of the abortion debate because. Um, I don't think your, your uh, average American Christian understands um, that even an abortionist was going to a church. And so this isn't an issue where we're doing a very good job of educating our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ very well on the topic, which is why there's so much discord. And isn't it the case, Eddie, that a lot of women who do go and get abortions would identify themselves as born-again evangelical Christians? You're absolutely right, Nick. In fact, one of the the pieces of my research that that really surprised me was um, when you look at the women that go in to get an abortion, um, a substantial amount of them have a faith background. Now, we we don't know in every single case whether or not um, they are born again, but at the very least, um, church culture is something they're familiar with. It's something that they've been a part of in the past, if they're not still a part of. And that's across every single... um, piece of spectrum when it comes to faith. I mean, 42% are Protestant, 27% are Catholic. Um, that, that's 
that's a lot of different pieces of the Christendom spectrum, and it's important um, for us to understand that. These aren't women um, that, that don't understand the Christian faith or have never experienced it. Um, these women, in a lot of cases, um, have been in church and, and have been told about the gospel. And we can even say that these are women who were willing to say they were Protestant Catholic. For all we know, some of them might not have wanted to say anything going in to get an abortion. That's true. In a lot of cases, they, they don't even give up that specific information. But in the cases where they have, I mean, we're finding that um, 73% of women that, that get an abortion have some sort of faith background. And that's, that's a number that I don't think your average Christian would expect to hear. Well, let's talk about the women getting an abortion. I got my wife a DVD for Christmas movie. One of her favorite actors in Christian movies is a man named Bruce Marciano. And he's he played Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He does these, series, these movies called The Encounter and a TV show called The Encounter where he plays Jesus again talking to people. And Allison's Choice, it's a story that starts off a way we can't expect you see this car and you don't see anyone in but you hear this conversation going on with guys saying so do you love me do you are you willing to do this for me we all know what's going on next thing you know this girl allison is at an abortion clinic to get it taken care of and the jesus character shows up and tries to talk her out of it i'm not going to tell you all how it ends you need to get it for yourself but I mean, there's a lot of women that do wind up at abortion clinics like that, that they wanted to do something because their boyfriends pressured them, in many cases, and they just think there's no other place to turn to, isn't there? That's, you know, more than more often than not, that's exactly what the research indicates, Nick, and that's another reason why this is such an important issue for us to dive into deeper. Um, there was a landmark study that was done, um, what year was that? It's been done over the span of two separate decades. And in both situations, they got the same data. This is by Finer and Zolna. Um, they did it um, from 2001. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong piece of information. Give me just a moment. Um, this, is, um, this is something that's been done twice over, once by an individual by the name of Mary Zimmerman and another time by an individual by the name of David Reardon. Um, Zimmerman um, first did the study in 1977, Reardon followed it up in 1987, and they found the data to be the exact same in both studies. Um, they asked these women two questions um, after their abortion. The first question they asked them was whether or not they felt pressure to abort from the people close to them. 53% of women said, yes, I did feel that pressure to abort. And then a number that is truly heartbreaking when we're talking about this issue, the next question they asked these women was, um, what would happen if someone told you to, um, someone encouraged you to keep this child? 82% of those women said they would have kept the child if a single person would have encouraged them mm. to do so. So these are women um, that don't want to do this. Um, they do, like you said, their, their perception is that they have nowhere else to go. They have no other options. And because of that, they're turning to this um, th this really awful um, choice. And if that weren't enough, um, there, there was another situation where um, Zimmerman um, in 1977 and then later an individual by the name of Finer 
followed this up in 2005, and they asked women two questions of their own of another study. Um, they asked women if they believed abortion should be a legal right for women. And these women in these studies, 70% of the time said, yes, I do think this should be a legal right of mine. But then their follow-up question, Nick, was do you believe abortion is immoral? And those same women said, yes, it is immoral 75% of the time. So that's a 5% overlap. You have 70% of women in the study saying, yeah, I think it should be legal. But then 75% of the same women turn around and say, yeah, but it's wrong. And so these are women who, who understand that they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They don't think what they're doing is right, but they're glad it's legal because they don't know what else they would do. These same women, three out of four, tell us that the reason that they're getting this abortion is because it would interfere with their job or with school or because the idea of having another child just flat out isn't affordable. And so this really does boil down to a cultural attack that we have been placing on women um, and they're finding no one else to help them. You know, I'm thinking two different things here. First off, I'm thinking many of these women these 82% said if someone had said something to me, I wouldn't have got, they could have been attending a church for all we know this time, and no one came to them and said, hey, uh, are you, uh, you're, you're pregnant, and her, her and say, yeah, I might just not keep the baby. I mean, these women in church think there's no one they can turn to. That, that really speaks about that we're not being the community we need to be. Uh, Nick, I 100% agree, and I would actually push back and, and add to that and say oh, there are two other issues with that. I think immediate family um, is, is asleep at the wheel when this happens, and I would also say um, that the men in these, women li- in these women's lives are also um, nowhere to be found, that that's really a major issue. In fact, um, more of the research I've done, um, we end up finding out Um, This is from a study by S.K. Henshaw from um, 1998. Um, He discovered that 83% of women that get an abortion are unmarried. Um, 71% live alone. And here's the one that just is mind-blowing. Nearly half of the women who go in to get an abortion have been in a relationship for over a year or longer with the man involved or not involved in the unexpected pregnancy. And so not only are these women who are single – These are women that don't live with anyone, and these are women who still have baggage and some sort of pseudo relationship with some kind of guy who obviously wants the physical part of the relationship, but they want nothing to do with the rest of that woman's life, especially if that relationship creates a second life. And so you end up in a scenario where these women are in some sort of relationship, if you can call it that, and when something happens, like she gets pregnant, the man is nowhere to be found. You know, the other thought I had also, before I get back to what you just said, that's how Greg Coper has said, he talks to people and asks them about abortion. He says, so, um, what do you, do you think abortion will cure a child? And they'll say, yeah. I says, but do you think it should be legal that a woman should have the right to choose that? He says, yeah. So, I'm just like, you think that it should be allowable for a woman to have a right to kill her own children. And I say, well, when you put it that way, and say, put it what way? That's what you just told me. Yes, that's absolutely right. And that's what we're running into today is a, is a scenario where um, the abortion culture 
um, and frankly, the abortion business um, wants women, especially, not to view this as what it is, which is the ending of a human life. And because of that, um, we're, we're left in a scenario where one, um, abortionists have been very good at projecting this as a sort of phenomenon that doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, this is just sort of a, a weird situation that sort of emerged. It's, it's, it's not normal. Um, let's just take care of it and, and really taking the humanity out of it. And it's been effective. Um, it's been very effective. They have, they have done a very good job of convincing women that they're not dealing with another human life. And they've also done a very good job of convincing these women that they're an anomaly, which couldn't be further from the truth. The, the sad thing is, unfortunately, I say this as a guy as well, that probably most of the men don't really need convincing in these cases. It's, they're not really looking to be convinced. I, I, I'm a strong Star Wars supporter of marriage and following proper rules of marriage and one of them is save any sexual intercourse for until you get married because if you don't these kinds of situations happen and you know I just want to tell these women say look I know you think if you give it to this guy he's really going to love you and he's just going to want to stay with you and such a lot of times you're in fact lose a lot of respect for you and say where's geez you're willing to give everything and I don't even have to make a commitment to you and then when an inconvenience comes up he says well I can just move on to the next person yeah that's certainly what's happening um and it's it's really um it's, it's creating some substantial problems in our society um and what I mean by that is when you look deeper into these numbers um I want for a minute Nick if it's okay to, sure. to help our our listeners understand how pervasive this issue is in our day to day. I don't think um, the typical American understands how substantial um, abortion is in our lives today. Let me, let me start by saying this um, today in America, half of every um, half of all pregnancies are unintended. They're an accident. One out of two. So that means every time a child is conceived in the United States of America, one of those two conceptions was an accident, okay? So that right there speaks to what you're talking about. This is a situation where um, so many women are becoming pregnant and they're not even expecting that they are pregnant. It's not something they're trying to do. It's not something that they're planning on and still it's happening. Now, normally this is where abortionists begin to say, see, this is why we need contraception. This is why we need... Um, more birth control. The problem with that is that that doesn't actually hold up to reality. Um, 51% of women told um, R.K. Jones in a study from 2012, 51% of women told their um, researchers that they were on some sort of contraception the month they got pregnant leading up to their abortion. So over half of women are on contraception and they're using it correctly. And they're still getting pregnant. And so this isn't an issue of birth control. This is an issue of what you spoke to, um, sex outside of marriage. Now, to go even further with this, if one out of every two abort, uh, I'm sorry, if one out of every two pregnancies was unexpected, um, that becomes a major issue because what we end up finding out is that um, 20% of all American pregnancies now end in abortion because 40% of these accidental pregnancies end in abortion. So if you line up 10 women that are pregnant in, in, in this country, um, half of them didn't mean to get pregnant. 
and two out of those 10 are going to abort their child. And so that means that 20% of all pregnancies in our country today end in an abortion. And that is a massive number. That means that by the age of 45, one out of three women in America have had an abortion. You know, I'm, I'm also thinking one of the reasons that it might not always work as well is, I mean, I know as a married guy, when you get caught in the moment, you're not thinking too straight about anything else. So I seriously doubt that in a moment of passion, the guy's just going to say, hold on, let me go put on my protection right quick, okay? I, I'm sorry, I just don't see that happening. Well, regardless of, of what contraceptive method is being taken, it doesn't matter. You're right. It's not working. And so what we end up with is a situation where the abortion uh, culture has done a good job of saying, um, we think we're protected, but if we're not, that's fine because we have other ways of eliminating um, this quote unquote problem. Now, what really becomes fascinating when we begin to look at this again, kind of back to the pervasive nature of this issue is again, I think we're even if I say all those stats I've said, right, one out of three women by the age of 45 um, will have had an abortion, even though I'm saying 20% of all American pregnancies end in abortion. Yeah, that still maybe doesn't register for how big this is. Uh, I want to look for a second at, at what are the leading causes of death in America today. Mm -hmm. 21% of Americans today die by heart disease. That's 600,000 a year. Um, 20,000, or I'm sorry, 20% of Americans die by cancer. That's 580,000 people a year. Um, there's a reason why abortionists don't want you to be able to claim that a, um, an aborted fetus is a human life, because if they were now considered humans, they would make up 55% of annual American deaths because over a million people a year die via abortion. Mm -hmm. And so you would find yourself in a situation where abortion kills as many humans, if we would define them as humans, as cancer and heart disease in America combined. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I find it odd when I hear people say that abortion is what's going to keep women from being treated as objects. Because, so I look at it, it's the exact opposite case, because, like, I can say, well, I can sleep with this girl I want to if she gets pregnant, where well, she'll just get an abortion. The, and before Ingrid said, okay, if this girl gets pregnant, she's going to have a baby, I'm going to have to pay child support and everything like that. Uh, yeah, it doesn't work as well. Right. I, I don't see how we got to the point where uh, we're allowing yourself to be more capable of being used as a sex object means you're being set free. Well, Nick, I actually think that this speaks to an even larger issue, and this, this is for both um, Americans outside of the church. And I would even push back and say, this is for Americans who might be in the church because this is also a church issue in America today. Um, but what we need to do is, is, um, reapproach our, our, our study of the Bible and get back to looking at what the message of scripture is. Mm -hmm. And it's uncanny, Nick. Um, I ask students in my classes, I ask individuals when I'm at churches speaking, um, I ask individuals just in conversations around the country, I ask them a simple question. More often than not, they, they don't know the answer to it. And my answer or my question is this, what is the first command God gives humanity in scripture? And I hear more often than not something like, oh, love your neighbor or something like um, one of the 10 commandments. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. Actually, 
You read your Bible, good sir. Nick is correct. The very first commandment in Scripture is God telling Adam and Eve, hey, go make more humans. And so fundamentally, what it means to be human and what it means to not be an object um, is to make other human beings at the core of what it means to be a living, breathing human created by God is the art of reproducing it. God put it first. And so what that tells us is that marriage and family building is the very bedrock of society. It's the very bedrock of culture. And the real fear I have as abortion becomes larger and larger and it becomes more of an issue around the world is we are really taking away the foundation of what it means to be human when we engage in eliminating the next human life. Something I've talked about before with abortion is, I've said, you know, abortion is really the form of human sacrifice that we have today. I mean, not cutting the ancients any slack, what they did was wrong, but you know, when they sacrificed a child, they did it for the good of a harvest and such, when they were the gods, when we sacrifice a child, we sacrifice at the altar of convenience. We do. We, we 100% do. Um, and it's fascinating, Nick. Um, when, when I begin a lecture on this topic, and I'll be lecturing on this actually in um, Fishers, Indiana, next Sunday. Um, and I always open, open up the lecture by talking first about um, original design, talking about that first command that God gives us. But then I pivot almost immediately, and I introduce uh, my listeners to Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. And this is what Rawlinson has to say in his book on Phoenicia uh, on page 113. He says, the image of Moloch was a human figure with a bull's head and had outstretched arms ready to receive children destined for sacrifice. The image of Moloch was metal and it was heated red hot by a fire kindled within the torso of Moloch. And the children would be laid on his arms by the priest and rolled off into the fiery pit below. In order to drown out the cries of these victims, Flutes would be played, drums would be beaten, and the mothers would stand without tears or sobs to give the impression of this voluntary character of offering. Now, Nick, when I start my lecture off with that and I scan the audience, you see these looks of horror and disgust, and, and they understand that what we're talking about is inhumane and, and really awful. Mm -hmm. And yet, that's exactly what we're in the business of doing in America today. We've just changed the terminology and we've just changed the method. But rest assured, we're doing the exact same thing. We call it convenience. The ancients called it Moloch. Well, let's talk about the person who might not be convinced, be they a skeptic of Christianity or even the Christian who just doesn't really know about what's going on. So say, well, how can you be sure what's inside me is really a human and a human person, in fact, maybe it is just a fetus. Maybe it is just a bunch of cells together. Well, I mean, that, that is something that's going to continue to be waged um, for years and years to come. And Nick, the, 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 the really big problem with that is even in the field of science, um, we have to acknowledge the fact that even in the scientific community, of which I'm not a part of, by the way. So this is an outsider's perspective. Um, but frankly, there's a lot of subjectivity in the scientific community. And at the end of the day, there are interpretations being made um, that warrant somebody's um, ultimate deep-seated beliefs. And so 
depending on who you ask in the scientific community, they're going to give you a different time for when a, for when a life is technically considered human. If you ask a, a strong Christian scientist, they'll tell you that life begins at conception. If you ask a humanist scientist, when does life begin? They'll tell you at birth. But then if you go a little bit deeper, you will find published work on individuals in the scientific community who claim that an individual is not human until they have consciousness. And so, I mean, depending on who you ask, human life begins anywhere between conception and like age four or five. And so I can't even really, Nick, dive too deep into your, into your question, because in the scientific community, we don't have consensus on when human life begins because they can't make up their mind because they're blinded by subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then maybe we could at this point say that if we're not going to discuss, you would say, use the old analogy about if you're out hunting with a buddy and you see a rustle in the bushes and if you're not sure if it's a prize buck or if it's your buddy, you just don't shoot. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. I, one that I fully support. Mm-hmm. Well, I was listening to Fox News the other day. We had on, we were doing some things around the house, and there was a whole lot of talk about the uh, Planned Parenthood. With, I think Trump is going to defund Planned Parenthood more, and Planned Parenthood saying, we provide all these services for women. They're just not getting anywhere else. And that sounds really persuasive a lot to a lot of people, I'm sure. But count me skeptical of that one. Well, the first thing I'll tell you is, is once the discussion veers um, into, into that discussion, what you start to notice is that you're starting to deal with apples and oranges. Um, if we're going to discuss strictly the, the topic of abortion, Planned Parenthood has a major stake in the abortion business. Um, that has been proven. That has been verified. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really wise tactic that Planned Parenthood has when the minute the topic of abortion comes up, they pivot immediately to their other services. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would, if, if I had the opportunity to speak to an individual um, from Planned Parenthood or an individual that supported Planned Parenthood, what I would want to ask them is, okay, I'll bite. Let's talk for a minute about the other services you provide, um, these free services you provide. What I would want to know is, why is it then that if abortion is threatening your very existence, but you provide all these other services, then why insist on continuing to do an act that could put you out of business? Mm-hmm. Because I promise you, anybody in American government, if they heard from Planned Parenthood, okay, 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 we're going to stop the abortions, just please let us continue these other services, no right-minded politician, or for that matter, no crazy politician, would say, no, we're still shutting your doors. Mm -hmm. And so what Planned Parenthood is doing is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and they're saying, well, if you shut us down over this act that you call abortion then you're going to ruin all these other services we provide for the community. And what I want to hear the community say is, hey, if you care about doing these other services for us, then stop doing the deplorable act of abortion that's causing people to question whether or not you need to keep your doors open in the first place. Okay. But let's uh, look at what they said, Stuart. I mean, are there other places women can go to get the same kind of care they're supposed to be getting at Planned Parenthood? 
Well, you know, they asked that same question to Dr. Ben Carson when he was running for president back in 2015. And I haven't dug into this yet to verify whether or not what he said was legitimate or not. But they asked him if he was willing to close down all these um, Planned Parenthood clinics, um, knowing the services they provided. And um, he asked a very interesting rhetorical question. He asked the interviewer, I thought that was what the Affordable Health Care Act was all about. If the Affordable Health Care Act um, is what we say it is, then these women should still be able to receive all of the treatment and care that they would receive at a Planned Parenthood anywhere else for the same zero price. And so that was interesting. It, it strikes me as just not very conceivable, pardon the term, to uh, say that Planned Parenthood is the only place on the market providing these services for women. I mean, definitely something like, say, mammograms. I'm pretty sure a woman could get that at any gynecologist office anywhere. Mm -hmm. The other issue that we have to address, too, is there's even debate, Nick, over what services Planned Parenthood even provides. Mm -hmm. Because um, the, the um, uh, I'm blanking on her name, the, the CEO of Planned Parenthood. That's right. Um, I'm sorry. She was the founder. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the individual who, who currently leads Planned Parenthood. She was, she was um, interviewed over this issue at one point, and she said that they did not provide mammograms. But then when she was in front of Congress, she said that they did. And so I don't even know if they offer some of these services that they claim they offer, because at different times, she has said that they do or do not. And so at one point, you have to throw up your arms and go, we're not even sure what you provide and what you don't provide. And these provisions that you boast of are what's, is what you're using to keep us away from the fact that there are so many abortions occurring at your clinics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's uh, go back, in fact, to something that you said earlier here. And actually, I'm looking up the, uh, Cecily Richards, is that the current leader there? Yes, that's it. That's, that's the name I was looking for. Thank you. But let's go back to talking about for women involved in these incidents and such who are getting abortions. Now, we've seen stories going on. Now, like, for instance, we had the uh, four youths who captured and tortured this uh, teenager with a special needs and such. And that's been all over the news. And a lot of people are asking, where are the parents of these people? Where? That's about the girls who are going in and getting abortions. And we're going to stick to the girls, not the women who are like in their 30s and 40s. So it's just, just stick to teenagers pretty much and such. Where are the parents? That's a fantastic question. And I think it's the question that we need to, that we need to really focus on. Um, because Nick, that, that's really um, where the foundations begin. Now, here's the thing. When we're talking about the age of women when they get an abortion. Um, that's a really interesting study because 17% um, of the people that get abortions are between the ages of 15 and 19. That's not a small number. If there's a million abortions a year, which is the average, and 17% of those million, that's over 100,000, are coming from girls between the ages of 15 and 19, then we've got a major issue on our hands, mm -hmm. especially when we start to look at the data that comes out in Finer's and um, Philbin's research from 2013 that tells us that 7 out of 10 American teenagers have engaged in sexual intercourse before they're 19. 
So we see why that's happening. You have a majority of girls before they get to college who have already engaged in sex. And because of that, we have over 150,000 girls a year from that age bracket that are getting pregnant and ultimately seeking an abortion. And so not only is it where are the parents, but at the end of the day, I think what we need to tell ourselves is where is all of the leadership that a girl at this age ought to be receiving? Um, where, where, where are the youth pastors? Where are her teachers? Where are her parents? Um, and frankly, where's the guy is really where um, I think we need to continue to steer the conversation. Where, where's the guy? Um, because far too often that's the case and, and not to get too um, um, historical here, but you know, I do find it fascinating, Nick, um, that in ancient Jewish culture, by the time a boy um, had turned 15, his bar mitzvah was a thing of the past. He had been deemed a man long ago. And so if we really want to take a very long view approach and a really sober look at these numbers, um, you know, an ancient Jew um, would not have been overwhelmed by the idea of a teenage girl getting pregnant because that's when all of the girls in their towns got pregnant. Um, and that's when all of the, the young men in the town were expected to become fathers. And so it really shows um, sort of the, the spiritual descent we have had when um, pregnant at age 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 is all of a sudden a concern and not normal. Um, but I digress. You know, so I'm thinking of that is, I mean, we just got done celebrating Christmas, and I think it's reasonable that it could very well be that Mary was a teenager, and she was given responsibility of being entrusted with the Savior of the world. Today, most girls her age then would have a conniption trying to decide whether they were going to wear to school the next day. You're absolutely right. And Nick, I, I never do bring that up during the Christmas season just because I, I don't want to get too political, but you are 100% right. Um, it is highly probable that Mary would have been a poster child for abortion in her time. Yeah. And I think part of it also is the ways that one of the things is we have no rite of passage rituals or anything like that to show that someone is a man or a woman today. No. And, and one of the bad things that we teach our men, also our young men as well, if you're a real man, you're going to be going out there and you're going to be having sex and you're going to be scoring with as many women as you can. That's absolutely right. And I would even add to that that we've actually added vocabulary to our languages um, to, to address the fact that we can't call um, teenage boys men anymore. In fact, we have now developed the term adolescent mm -hmm. to basically define a person that begins to look like an adult but is not prepared to behave as an adult. And because of that, I think that jives and correlates with the data we're discussing. I think that's why we see 70% of teenagers getting pregnant and everybody having um, no clue what to do when it occurs. And the sad thing is a lot of the fathers can be encouraging this. When I was in high school, I was part of a men's Bible study group, all men and we, we'd have many of these very frank conversations. One about a guy I knew went home to see his dad, and the conversation went pretty much like, well, I got laid the other night, and his dad says, well, it's about time. Well, I can tell you the, uh, the, the way the other side of that coin looks. Um, you know, when I was in the middle of writing this book, I, I, was in mid, I was in West Texas. And this is purely anecdotal. This is certainly not represent, represent, 
representative of uh, all of American Christianity, but it does point to what you're talking about, Nick, which is I vividly remember I was in West Texas and I was, I was having a discussion with um, a young woman who, who had been through a lot of counseling and um, um, was really trying to get back into, um, you know, a church community. And I asked her uh, kind of frankly, Hey, you know, why, um, why is it so hard for you to enter, enter the church again? Uh, What happened? And I was really surprised at how transparent she was. And she went on to tell me um, through a lot of tears, of course, um, that when she was 16, she had gotten pregnant um, with her boyfriend's baby. And she was actually prepared to keep it. And her father was an elder at the church. And he absolutely refused for her to have that child. And he paid for the abortion. He took her to go get the abortion so that his role in the church would not be compromised. And I remember just being overwhelmed by the fact that, you know, that is reality in a lot of cases. Now, that isn't every single church in America, and that's not even representative of all the data that we see. Nevertheless, that is a true story, which means that that kind of thing is happening, and it actually does look at what we're finding in the data where it tells us that 53% of women feel pressured to get an abortion, and of those same women, 82% tell us that if anyone had said, yes, I want you to keep this baby, I support that, I will help, then they would have done it. And so this is certainly a scenario where these women are not finding virtually any support um, and at the same time are finding a lot of people resistant to what's going on. I'm just sitting here just so stunned. I mean, I kind of thought it was going to go that way, but just actually hearing it. And it's the only thing that... So many of these men were just concerned about their own reputation and such, and that matters more to them than having an actual child be alive. Their reputation means so much, and with an elder church, I mean, I just want to go and say, okay, how does your reputation before God look when you condone something like this? That's the that's the million dollar question that, that, that I think really drives um, this issue. And it's why I feel so strongly about presenting almost exclusively to the Christian American, um, because that's the question that I think has been missed and been avoided for far too long, which is um, at the end of the day, Nick, abortion is a spiritual issue and you don't enter into the discussion of abortion. Should I get one? Why am I being forced to get one? If you're not asking the question of how can I, how can I use my life to glorify Christ? And there's just no way to get around it. Nobody sits down on a morning and says, I have an idea for how to glorify Christ. I'm going to get pregnant or I'm going to take part in a pregnancy and then we're going to abort the life. Nobody thinks that way, which means at the end of the day, we're dealing with a situation of who do we ultimately desire to glorify? Do we desire to glorify ourselves or do we desire to glorify our savior? And that is really the foundation of this issue. Yeah. I mean, we are talking about how it is on the other side for women and such. And one thing I'm thinking is I've got a picture here that I keep by my computer. As me listeners wouldn't be surprised to hear, it's a picture of my wife. It's a picture she took in her senior year in high school and both professional photos they have done such really a great shot of her and I'm thinking there is no doubt in my mind women are made to be beautiful by God 
no doubt I would say women are supposed to be the most beautiful aspect of creation. But just as men really have no way of identifying their manhood and such, women, I think, have the same struggle. And while we should encourage women to want to be beautiful, to be the best they can and such, they also live in a world where they have photoshopped women on TV and advertising that they can never ever look like because no one can look like that who have all these perfect bodies and such and they can go and think that's what it means to be loved that's what it means to be beautiful that's what it means to be wanted and so many of them they they want someone to really appreciate them and tell them they're beautiful but the first person they want to hear this from usually is their own dad they would love to hear that, but if they can't, they'll go out and find it from another guy. And too often, the strings on that would be, you gotta have sex so I, we can know how beautiful you are. Nick, you know, you're touching on such a, on such a sensitive and yet important issue in this discussion. And that is the fact that, um, what normally gets thrown back at the pro-life person. Um, and I would agree with everything you said. Um, there's so much legitimacy to the idea that the reason this keeps happening is because women are seeking that affirmation. And here's what's fascinating. More often than not, a pro-abortionist will engage in debate with a pro-lifer and they'll say something along the lines of, you know what, you're just anti-women. You want to take away these rights from the woman. You want to take away from, you know, this, and, and you want to pigeonhole her identity to one particular thing. And yet there's something fascinating about what they're saying that I think it's missed. And there's two things that I, that I would want to engage with on this. The first one is there have been roughly 58 million abortions since 1973, legal abortions in America. Um, that means that there have been 29 million unborn females that have been aborted in the name of women's empowerment. I don't understand how that's pro-women. Right. And the other thing that I would add to that is there have been a multitude of studies on the issue of what happens to the woman post-abortion. And I just want to read off a, a list of statistics here, and this is going to be sort of rapid fire. Um, so I would encourage the listener, um, you might have to pause play, pause, play, pause, play to catch all of them. But there is substantial empirical evidence um, that abortion is both mentally and physically traumatic to the woman who gets the abortion. And here's, here's what they look like. Okay. 55% of these women who get an abortion express guilt following the abortion. 44% of these women complain of having nervous disorders tied to their abortion. 31% complain of sleep disturbances. 31% also admit that they regret their abortion outright. So that's three out of 10 of these women say, I flat out regret doing it. Depending on the study, because there's been multiple ones, 30 to 50% experience sexual dysfunction. This is both in the short and long term. So they don't even want to, they don't even want to engage in sex anymore. And 25%, one out of four of these women visit a psychiatrist because of their abortion. Now, what's fascinating is if you take those 25% of girls and make a study particularly for them, here's what you find out. Those women who reported this post-abortion trauma and sought a psychiatrist, of those women, we find out that 80% of them identify themselves as self-hating, 
49% report drug abuse, 39% report increased alcohol consumption, 60% of these women have suicidal ideations, and 28% of them have actually attempted suicide. Mm. And so I look at these stats over and over again, and I continue to read these studies, and I think to myself, I just don't understand how the pro-life movement has done such a poor job of marketing itself that they can be deemed the people that are anti-women. You know, when I'm here, Ms. Also, you said a lot of women have no interest in sex anymore, which I can understand. But I've also heard that some women will go out and they'll have sex again, and their plan is to get pregnant again and to have an abortion again because they think they deserve to be punished again for what's happened. Now, you know, it's interesting. I, ha I don't have any data on that, Nick. I don't necessarily doubt it's true. Um, but on the other side of that, um, of, that um, of what you've just said, is, is the other statistic that I just continually can't fathom its reality, but it's verified, it's from a study. There's no getting around it. But at the end of the day, um, what we don't understand is that 61% of women who get an abortion are already mothers. <sighs> that comes from RK Jones and Finer, 2010. 61% of women who choose, an, who choose an abortion have previously given birth. So these are mothers six out of 10 of the times. And so this is a situation where it, it leads us back to the notion, Nick, that this is a, an issue where the family is non-existent, as is the male in the situation, that a woman can already be a mom, get pregnant, and not think it's possible to have another child. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking us about how the pro-life women have seen us anti-women, I've put up some posts on Facebook for my status, I've been seen as anti-women, when I think if anyone really examined them, they'd be the exact opposite. For instance, I, I usually post something on marriage every day I'm on Facebook, which is every day except Sunday, and one day I, I post about how Stephen Crowder had shared a story about how he and his wife waited for marriage to have sex, and how glad they were that they did it, that it was worthwhile and such, and... I posted the same kind of things, and you know what? Allie and I did that too, and it's worth it. We are glad we waited, and I just want to encourage you. I said, women, I'd like you to really think about how much do you think you're worth? I mean, what is it? Are you worth dinner and a movie, three dates, a month, engagement, a year? Or are you worth a total lifetime commitment? And so many people are and now when you see someone who's show up and say, well, you're a slut-shaming, or you're, you're saying that if we have sex before marriage, we're not worth anything. Such I'm saying, no. You're deciding what you're worth. I think you're worth a total lifetime commitment. Do you? That's, that's the, that's the million-dollar question, Nick, and, and I support what you're saying um, 100%. In fact there's other data to suggest that what you're saying is something that women need to hear. Um, there's a lady by the name of Amy Kramer um, who wrote an article called um, the national campaign to end unplanned pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple things that came out of this article that were fascinating to me. The number one piece of advice that senior girls have for younger girls in high school is that it's okay to be a virgin when you graduate high school. 
In fact, more than eight out of 10, 84%, in fact, say that it's important for younger girls to know that. And that comes from senior girls, 87% of which have already had sex themselves. So here's what's interesting. Later in that article, Amy Kramer reports that through over three out of four girls, 77, 76% have had sex and they said that they would change something about their first time, which means it wasn't that great. And what's really fascinating is that a sizable majority of these senior girls, 79%, say that they felt pressure to be sexually experienced in high school. And they say, and more than half of those girls say that the pressure came directly from their friends. And so this is a, this is a campaign that needs to be started very early. I mean, when we're talking to girls who are 12, 13, 14, 15, um, even at that point, they need to be told, listen, the, the, the value on your life um, should not revolve around your sexual activity because um, there are so many girls that come before them that will attest to the fact that what they're pursuing um, is something that really does need to be cradled and, um, and unleashed at the, at the appropriate time because so many girls, and these aren't even necessarily Christian girls. These are just girls across America. We have no demographic information on them. And a massive majority are saying, eh, my first time wasn't that great. And girls underneath us, you need to know it's not that big a deal if you wait. So they're basically, all these senior girls are broadcasting, 80 plus percent of these girls across high schools in America are broadcasting that sex is not that great in high school. Mm -hmm. That's coming from the women. Yeah. You know, when you're saying this, I'm... Think about it, you know, you're probably not going to be able to do as much if you feel pressured, if you feel like you have to do things, if you feel like you're being tested. In fact, that's what our whole culture day of things like living together and such do. It's in many ways saying, we're going to test one another in the bedroom and see if they're good enough. Well, how are you going to be doing your best? I mean, it's like doing a test. Anyway, many of us know many things, and as soon as we go in there to the testing room, our knowledge goes out the window because we're nervous. Sure. Now, when you were talking also about 12, 13, 14, 15, time, I'm thinking, we need to go younger than that. I mean, one of the things I was thinking was that it, what the women need when they're growing up, if they have the father there with them, if not, they at least need a father figure there with them, someone who is consistently telling them, not even bringing up sex yet if they're too young, that they think they're beautiful and how much they're worth and fathers really need to be spending some good one-on-one time with their daughters. I agree, Nick. In fact, uh, if there are dads listening to this podcast or dads that is, or, or men who aspire to be dads, um, one thing I would have you write down in your smartphone and save for later um, is what you want to tell your girls if you have daughters someday when they're kids is you need to tell them, daughter, you are beautiful before a boy tells you you are. Mm-hmm. That, that is, um, you know, I have a daughter who is five months old. She doesn't understand the words that I tell her yet, but I promise you, I tell Berkeley all the time when I'm holding her. Berkeley, you are beautiful before a boy tells you you are. And that's important. Like, I, I 100% believe what you're saying, Nick, that, that a girl cannot hear young enough in their life that they're beautiful and that they're treasured. And um, that's not... Um, saying that if you do that, that your daughter is guaranteed not to engage in sexual activity before marriage. That's not a guarantee for anything, but it trims down substantially 
the um, emotional and mental struggles that girls have that lead them down the road of um, sex before marriage. It's not, it's not a perfect defense, but it, it really does combat a lot of the, the nervousness and, and concerns that a teenage girl has that leads them down that road. Yeah, something I tell people in the projects community, I mean, I don't have any kids yet, maybe someday, but uh, what I tell them is, and I, I presume I'm talking to men, but if you're a woman and you're in a projects, just reverse it for a year right with your spouse. And I say, look, guys, you and I, we, we love doing a projects. We enjoy what we do, but I want to be clear to you on something. If you're not feeling well or something like that someday and you need to take a break, you are not the only one doing this. There are several other people that can take up the slack for you and do the project work that you can't do for the time being. But when it comes to being a husband to your wife or a father to your children, no one can take up the slack for you. No one else can have that position where they shouldn't because if you don't, chances are someone else will take that position. So if it comes between what you're doing for your career and what you're doing for your family, remember, your family comes first. Well, and I think the reason why that's important, Nick, is because I think what a lot of um, individuals and in some sort of ministry capacity, whether they're apologist or a pastor or, or whatever they're their role might be is they mistake their ministry as something that doesn't um, include their family. And I think that implication out of the gate is a bad look at it, which is I think your ministry doesn't need to include your family. I think your ministry begins with your family. Um, I, I vividly remember um, being at a, at a uh, Christian ministers conference in Dallas, Texas. I don't remember who the speaker was, but he was the pastor of a, a massive mega church. And I remember him looking out at the crowd and saying, listen, you guys all need to, to warm up to the idea that your ministry um, really is your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when back in last year, I think it was October or so, in, on October 1st, there was no show that I did that day. Why? Audi wanted to go to Anime Weekend Atlanta. I'm the one who takes her, she can't drive, so I take her there, and I'm the one spending time with her, and she said, aren't you going to do a show this week? I said, nope, not doing a show, you come first, and she always does, now, I mean, of course, there are times that emergencies might happen, and I have to do something and such, and then also, I'm thinking that if you follow me on Facebook, and you watch every day that I'm on, I am posting something about loving my wife every day. And the reason is, is because I want people to know I love my wife and I am committed to my marriage. And I think that in itself is a ministry. And I, I just try and encourage couples, like, if you two are on Facebook, everyone on Facebook should know you two love each other. And when I hear people compliment me on the love my, I have for my wife and such, it is one of the highest compliments I ever receive. It, it is. And, and at the end of the day, there should be no, there should absolutely no doubt in the mind of a woman, whether or not her husband loves her. Um, and you're right. I think it's really, and, and I don't want to come at this, um, you know, from a high horse perspective either, because, you know, um, there's always room for improvement when it comes to how, how oh, a yeah. husband treats his wife. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, um, men can never aspire enough 
to really love their wives. And the reason why, and again, kind of steering this back into, uh, into what I find myself so concerned about when it comes to American faith and, and, and American culture, Nick, is at the end of the day, the reason I care about men loving their wives is because there's a trickle-down effect to this that influences our entire nation, which is your kids notice how you treat your spouse. Right. And your kids will one day be in their own relationships of the romantic kind. And you can't talk about loving your wife without eventually getting to the point where we're back to what we're talking about, which is this act of abortion. And the only kind of guy who can leave a woman pregnant without very many options is the kind of guy that has not been taught and has not experienced what it looks like for a man to love a woman well. Yeah. You know, part of this, I think, is comes as down to it as well, our tendency to treat other people as objects, treat them as pragmatic. And in some cases, when we go through the checkout line at a grocery store, for instance, we're not thinking, I need to, you know, to uh, build up a deep abiding relationship with a cashier. No, we just can't treat them as, well, this person is here to do this service for me. And we start seeing people a lot of times as doing something for me. And so it can be tempting for a lot of men to look at a woman and say, well, her purpose is to provide sex for me and not see her as a person. And what a shock if, if that's where you think that you don't see the baby in the womb as a person either. No, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we talk about fathers and daughters spending time together, one thought I still had is, even though Allie and I have been married six and a half years nearly, that there are still times that her dad will come over and what they'll do is they'll go out and look at trains together. That's their big thing. It's a father-daughter thing. Every time they they say they're going to do that, I stay home entirely because that father-daughter time is still very important to have. And I mean, fathers out there you really just don't know the impact you have on your daughters. It's powerful. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There's no other way to get around that. And and it really does play in our world today because, I mean, the, the more you study um, something like abortion, the more it becomes clear um, that what these women need more than anything else is support and affection and they need to know they need to know um that they're more than this situation that they're that they're experiencing um because they haven't been proven by anybody else near to them that that's the case and they need to know they're more than just sex absolutely you know something else we about that kind of mindset that young people especially have today is it always strikes me as a contradiction that if a man sleeps with a bunch of different women where he's a man you know that's that's what a man does if a woman does the same thing she's a slut that's true um that that's certainly a stigma we have in our country and i would actually even steer it another direction and say that i think the main hurdle that a pro-lifer in america needs to clear in order to really be effective when it comes to this issue is not stereotyping the woman that is either um, approaching an abortion clinic or has been in an abortion clinic. They have to see them as more than the deed 
right? They have to see them in more than just the abortion. Because I think what we run into a lot of times is we have to ask ourselves as pro-lifers, um, something I'm assuming um, I can place on you and something I, pl- I proudly place on myself, which is what does it mean to be a pro-lifer and how can that practically change the world? And I think what we run into too often is that a pro-lifer wants to get involved way too late in the process, right? Um, they want to involve themselves in the life of a stranger. And not only do they want to involve themselves in the life of a stranger who's a girl, but they also just simply want to share with them the truth, as they say, which is, hey, listen, you are harboring a human life that has value. You need to consider that, right? It's almost like a lecture. And what I think is missing in that situation is the fact that they're talking to a human life that has value. And so one of the things I tell um, individuals that I get to talk to about this the most is that there is absolutely no shot of saving an unborn life if you don't first invest in the woman who is carrying that life. You cannot belittle or embarrass or harass a woman and expect her to in turn think about that child. It's just not going to happen. So um, one of the things that I think needs to change immediately is the signs outside of an abortion clinic do not put the humanity onto the woman walking in to the abortion clinic. She is now an idea, right? She is now an object back to what we're talking about. Women being objects. The only way that we can take that away from the woman and give her back her, her humanity is if we see that if we want to serve the life inside her, we first have to serve that woman as well. The two are a package deal. I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host. My guest is Ty Binbo. We're talking about women seeking abortions and the case of men involved with them as well. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have another member of the Christian Apologetics Alliance here, Elijah Thompson. It's going to be my guest, and we're going to be continuing talking about abortion again. And uh, he's done a lot of work, I think, on uh, Judas Jarvis Thompson's uh, violinist analogy. He's got some things he wants to share there, I think. So uh, just be tuning in next week if you want to hear more about the topic of abortion. As we are coming back to this, you know, one of the things I was thinking you were saying that is... We do the same thing a lot of times with a counterpart in evangelism, that what we often want to do is focus on getting converts. And personally, I don't like the word convert. I don't like talking about getting conversions and such, because what it seems to me like too often is we're interested in getting a person to sign on the dollar line and say yes to Jesus, and then we do nothing with discipleship or anything like that, it's just, okay, they're in, let's move on to the next person. And too often, I think, in take cases of abortion, looking at that, we can look and say, okay, this woman has a human child, we need to give a life save. Oh, good, she said no. Okay, let's go on our way, let's go to the next one. I agree. Yeah, it becomes a scenario where it's like, hey, I did my part. I held a sign, I reminded that girl who has no other options that what she's doing is wrong, you know, like I've done my part, I'm a pro-lifer. And what you realize is all of a sudden you've, you forgot that you've mistakenly um, detached the woman, the would-be mother from the unborn life that you're saying that you're trying to protect. And we will not be successful in rescuing a single unborn child from abortion if we don't first touch the life of the woman that's carrying the unborn life. We just, we flat out won't. And so 
I've actually said routinely, Nick, that I think one of the strategies that the pro-life movement ought to, ought to start to um, implement is kind of putting their money where their, where their mouth is or, or put their money where the sign is and, and just, you know, keep the signs, but change what they say. Can you imagine what it would look like if a young woman who felt like she had no other options and no support was walking towards an abortion clinic and she saw a series of signs from a local church that said something along the lines of, we don't know your name, we don't know your story, but we love you and we'll pay whatever it takes to keep that child living. Mm. What would it look like if the local church decided, hey, you know what, we're going to serve that woman to the point where she doesn't even consider the idea of an abortion. And I think it's good for a church to do that as a whole because no doubt there are a lot of individuals who are pro-life who can't do that. My wife and I couldn't do that right now, but the church as a whole is different. You know, Nick, that, that's, that's 100% true. And I'm going to, if I have your permission, kind of wade into some tricky waters here, but I think they're important waters for us to, to navigate. Um, here's what I always kind of conclude my, my lecture with, and it's, it's a challenge to the local American church, and it's one that we can't take lightly. Because you're right, Nick, an individual alone, more often than not, probably is not in a fiscal position to do this kind of thing, right? There are some, some upper middle class and upper class families who can um, fully fund the, the, the woman carrying a life to term, but there are a lot of individuals who cannot, the churches can. And I want to share these statistics with you and I'll do it as gently as I can. But at the end of the day, the, the data kind of speaks for itself. Um, there are a million abortions annually on average. Um, however, there are 300,000 churches nationwide so if each church in America, just think about this for a second, if every church in America committed as part of their central Christian vision that they were going to stop at any cost one abortion every season of the year, one in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall, one in the winter, if every church in America put their fist on the table and said, one abortion this season, we are stopping. One point two. If every church did that, Nick, there wouldn't be any more abortions. Mm -hmm. It would cease to exist. No laws would have to be passed. No legislation would have to be churned through Congress. Abortion would be extinct. And on that same topic, there are more churches in every single state in America than there are kids in foster care. If less than one church, or if every church took less than one kid on average across the country, then the foster care system in America would cease to exist. So the question then that we have to beg ourselves then is why is there foster care and why is there abortion? And unfortunately, and this is kind of where the, the, the topic gets a little iffy and, and people don't really like to hear it, but if you start to peel back the onion and look at how churches spend their money, 90% of the tithe never leaves the walls of the church. It pays for the building. It pays for the property. It pays for the pastor's salary and it pays to keep the program running that happens every Sunday morning. That means 10% of the tithe is left for these things. And so the reason there's a foster care system, the reason why there's still over a million abortions on average a year is because the church isn't spending their money on the kingdom of God. They're spending it on the program. You know, when uh, I lived in Charlotte shortly after I got married, we went back to Tennessee once. It was my birthday. I remember when it was a Sunday and we went to the church I had attended back in Tennessee then and people were glad to see us but we let them know how things you said it's tough 
we're in a very hard financial situation. We still are. It, it's just very, very tough. And then I heard in a sermon, the associate pastor talking about the recent ministry work that they had done. And $2 million they had invested in the ministry of basketball. They had spent $2 million to build a basketball place for upwards basketball. And I was seeing everything, I can't believe what I'm hearing. $2 million for basketball. If you had given me and my wife just 1% of that, we would have launched into such ministry and had more options. We've been able to do a, a whole lot more. I mean, this show wasn't going yet, but imagine we could have done all of this. And I think I would have been a better usage of the money instead of just playing basketball. I mean, I, I don't have anything against playing basketball as a ministry, but to invest two million like that when so many other things could have been done. And I remember afterwards just trying to talk to the associate pastor and he just really didn't have any interest in what we were saying when we talked about being poor and things like that. And I started out, come on, let's leave. We left. We never came back again, definitely. I mean, I have to say, one of the worst birthdays I'd ever had. And it, it still irks me to this day. It's like, there are so many ministries out there that are doing phenomenal work that could use for support. And the church just gives them to causes that aren't worth that kind of investment. You know, and the thing, I think the thing that I always sort of retreat back into and when um, the conversation goes this route is um, a lot of the times these churches aren't even aware of these realities. That's, that's one of the reasons why I find it to be a privilege that I get to speak on this issue. Um, Nick, you wouldn't believe the responses you get from the crowd when you talk about these things. They're floored to find out the realities of abortion and most churches outside of the leadership are floored to find out the way their funds are spent. Um, and so I think the, 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 the practical steps that churches can take from here on out is um, do we have a budget that is open to the public? Mm -hmm. um, is our budget in a position where we would be proud to send it to the public? What are areas that plague our nation that we can contribute funds to, to positively impact our culture? Um, these are the kind of questions I hope churches around the country begin to ask, because if a, if a church looks at this data, they roll up their sleeves and they go, okay, there are, we're, we're one of 300,000 churches in America. That means that our mass, even though we're no longer the majority, is still great enough that we can affect great change. Um, I think it will affect the foster care system. I think it will affect um, the, the business of abortion. Um, I think we will find ourselves in a scenario where this culture in America really begins to shift. And it's important that as many churches as possible can hear this, because I think um, the pro-lifer in, in the American church has gotten in their heads that they're going to see change on this topic when they elect the right people and they pass the right legislation. And the reason why I want them to reconsider that thought is because, one, that doesn't put any of the um, – any of the responsibility on them personally when they can affect change. And two, you can't look at the data that I'm looking at and that I present on and think that if you just pass a law, 
that's going to fix the emotional and mental and spiritual issues that these women have that lead them to pursue an abortion anyway. That's not going to change. If there's a law, it's not going to change a thing. These women are still going to feel alienated. They're still going to feel like they don't have an option. It's not going to fix the overall issue. Yeah, you know, I'm fairly conservative, always have been. I vote conservative and such. And so when it comes to our Supreme Court justice, I mean, I would deny, I'm, I'm hoping for pro-life judges. I think that's the correct way to interpret the Constitution as well. But at the same time, I want to say, It'd be great to see Roe v. Wade get repealed and things like that and such. But at the same time, I'm going to say, but that's not going to be the end of things because a government that can take a that can do that is just it can switch the next time someone else comes to power. And it might help some, but our salvation as Christians in this battle it doesn't come from the government. The government can be an aid to us or a hindrance. But it's not going to be our salvation. And our salvation is going to be teaching people what it means for a child to be a human being and how they're to behave sexually. I agree. And it's a really important thing for us to continue to pursue as Christians and as the church because um, we, we, we cannot continue um, to remain in this, this static state where we think that the abortion issue is something that we can elect into wins or losses. At the end of the day, the church needs to understand how important it is that they mobilize and that they get involved in changing the, the, the tide on this issue. Because you're right, policies and laws shift and change, and they're only as strong as the next, um, as the next administration and the next Congress. And, and it's really important that the churches understand that even if a law gets passed, these are still humans. These are still women. These are still unborn children that need the support of the church and they need the hope of Christ. And none of that is going to happen if they don't get involved. You know, I think part of the reason for this also is that our churches have really become so me-centered. And our, our songs, so many of the songs are about what Jesus is doing for me. So many of our sermons, they're purely application on how I am supposed to live and such. Now, you need some of that to be sure, but I mean, I, I'm not used to going to churches and hearing something about the history behind where we believe in such. We lived in Knoxville. Ari and I went to a great church together. It really did do us kind of thing. And I remember my roommate back in Charlotte before I got married, he and I were still very good friends today. And I still remember texting him during one service. Yes, they actually encouraged us to use our phones. In fact, you could text in your questions. For those who want to know about it, just look at my uh, interview I did with Matthew Peoples at the point here. But I texted him and said, I cannot believe it. I'm actually hearing a sermon about the conquest of Canaan. And it was just really incredible to me to hear that. But no, we go to our churches and it's all about me, 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 me. What a shock we don't think about other people. And that's, and that's really where this, where this debate um, ends and, and where it begins, is whether or not you're concerned with your fellow human. And this isn't just um, an issue in America. In fact, the title of this, this sermon I give um, whenever I get the chance um, to different churches is Abortion America and the World. 
And, and if I have your permission, Nick, what I'd like to do for just a minute is sort of give the listener sort of a 30,000 foot view of what abortion looks like across the world. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Th- th- what do we have to look forward to is kind of how I position it. It's how I ask it is, well, what does it look like um, down the road for us? Okay. And, and I want to focus on three um, countries in particular. I want to focus on Japan. I want to focus on the United States of America. And I want us uh, to focus on India. Um, Japan is 24 years ahead of America. Um, they, they legalized abortion in, in the year 1949. Um, America, of course, um, in 1973. And India, to this day, possesses some of the strictest abortion laws in the entire world. Um, in India, for a woman to get an abortion, she needs um, confirmation from two different doctors, independent from one another, that um, the life inside of her poses enough of a threat to her that she can't deliver. And if she doesn't have that, that she can't, then she can't terminate the pregnancy. Um, so India has extremely strict laws on this. Japan's 24 years ahead of America. Of course, we understand where America lies. Now here's what's fascinating in Japan. There are currently 16.6 million Japanese who are between the years 15 and you know, the time of birth. So zero to 15, there are 16.6 million Japanese kids. That might seem like a big number, but what we don't know is that there is one less person in that demographic of Japan every 100 seconds. There are more kids aging out of that age bracket than there are kids entering it. Okay, so that's a shrinking demographic, zero to 15 in Japan. At the same time, there is a diaper company in Japan called Unicharm. They're the largest diaper brand in Japan. And in 2015, they reported for the first time in their company's history that they sold more adult diapers than baby diapers. Wow. So Japan right now is putting more diapers on their elderly than they are on their children because there are far more adults than there are children. So they are literally, as a country, shrinking their 0 to 15 demographic while their aging demographic continues to grow. That's not good for them. Meanwhile, India, and this is always where you kind of get the, the biggest you know, eyeball look in the crowd. India currently, as a nation, has more honor students than the United States of America has students. Wow. Yeah, more honor students than America has students in total. And so what I always want to ask um, the people I'm speaking to and what I'd, last, what I'd ask your listeners now is who then is prepared to lead in the 21st and 22nd century? Hmm. You know, well, before I respond, Matt, I want to let people know that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported. So uh, if you want to be a part of that, I recommend you go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a button, there's a subheading there on the left that says, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that, and you get taken to Risen Jesus Ministries. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, yes, you have. That's uh, my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. They do our fundraising for us. Debbie is a financial guru who specializes in ministry taxes. Sounds like a pretty good choice to me to handle that. And she will uh, take your donation, and then you get in touch with me or Ali or Mike or Debbie or some combination of us. Say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. If you can be a monthly donor, that works even better. Then also you can buy ebooks that I've either written or co-written. 
Um, you get ones like the one I've written, A Creed for the Ages. I mean, you've also got ones that I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, which since uh, Mike Lacona's latest book has come out, which we are definitely going to be interviewing him on sometime about that, that book is probably going to be even more relevant right now. Books like uh, Groundless or God and Natural Disasters, Debate I Did with an Atheist. You can also buy jewelry. Now, guys, uh, you might not have noticed this, but for women in your life who do want to know they're beautiful and such, jewelry seems to help with that sometimes. So you can go to the store that we have here. It's ran by a Christian friend of mine, Premier Jewelers. And you can order something. And whatever you order, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. So guys, you can get something special for your wife and you can make up for that future screw-up that you're about to do or for that past screw-up that you've already done. Because we, we know you're in one of those two positions right now for a woman in your life. And if you can't do any of these, please consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to hear it. Now, Ty, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? You know, I'm really glad you asked that, Nick. Um, I don't have a particular um, charity that that I would want to steer um, the listener to specifically, um, but I do have a word of encouragement, which is for me personally, what I what I care most about is that the listener um, support whatever local ministry is in place um, concerning abortion. Um, if there's a women's clinic. Um, if there's something where where people are determined to um, positively influence the issue of abortion in their local area, um, I would I would ask that you gener- generously support them. Now let's go to what you were saying, and my ears kind of perked a bit when you mentioned Japan because my wife is fascinated with Japan, loves everything about Japan except for their food. And it is my dream that one day I will be able to take her to Japan for a vacation and sorts. So I was paying attention definitely when you said that. And one thing I know from her is that I think less than 1% of Japan also is Christian. And that's uh, that's quite concerning. And that, that could be part of a problem, in fact. I agree. Yeah. In fact, um, I think what, um, you know, since, since we're on the topic of, Hey, how can, how can the local church, um, continue to make a positive influence on the world that they're not currently doing as best they can. I think another thing we can talk about is, um, what, what part of the world in particular really needs the most attention. And, you know, it's interesting, Japan, J- Japan is a, um, first world country, right? They have, they have Liberty, they have wealth, um, you know, it's not incredibly dangerous, but you know what? It's a spiritually dark place. And so, yes, that's a country that, um, you know, there's a lot of advantages to, to seeking um, the kingdom growth in Japan because it's not, you know, they don't even have a lot of the hurdles that a lot of Christians, you know, you know sort of worry about like, man, you know, are we, are we entering a country where there's, you know, extreme faith against us? Is there, a, is there abundance of poverty? None of that's the case in Japan. And in fact, there is one organization I know of that's doing great work um, in Japan. And, and they're, they're a ministry out of Naples, Florida called Big Life. Um, their website, if you guys want to visit it, 
Um, it's really easy to remember. It's just, um, it's just big dot life. Super easy to get to. Um, they're doing work around the world. Um, but in particular that they're doing really great work in Japan. And that, that's one place that if, if you do have a desire uh, to see um, really great work for the kingdom of God done in Japan, um, big life is a place that I know of that, that I would endorse saying, man, they're, they're doing great work there. You know, one other reason I think that we should see this work being done is uh, like many people my age and such, I grew up in the video game generation and I'm still a large part of that. And my parents gave me Final Fantasy 15 for Christmas. So every day now I'm listening to a podcast and a projects podcast. I'm really catching up on Unbelievable since my in-laws got me an Amazon tap and I'm using that. So I'm listening to a podcast and I'm playing Final Fantasy 15 the whole time. If your kids play these games, if they watch Pokemon or any anime and such, they are being they're receiving messages from Japan and something I've noticed about the Final Fantasy games I mean I love them I enjoy them so much but you can be sure of something if the church shows up in a game it's going to be evil somehow I mean, the, the churches are never really the good guys there's always some corruption and it tells me geez what, what does Japan think about the church and, and how would it be different if this message could be changed if this if this country that has such an impact on the way we think by producing so much of our entertainment and such and our technology if they could be changed for Christ what a difference it would make I agree I 100% agree and um, listen especially a country like Japan or even China um, where a lot of content um, worldwide is going out. Um, what an opportunity for um, for the for the kingdom of God to, to just make a humongous impression. I agree. I mean, yeah. I mean, one one of my mentors um, a long long time ago used to tell me, when you come to the throne of a king, don't ask for small favors. And I think that I think that certainly applies when it comes to God. What would you have me do? in this world for the sake of Christ. Um, Japan is, is a big ask, right? But it's one that's certainly not overwhelming for our God. So yeah, absolutely, I agree. Now, we, we've made this contrast here between Japan and India. What do most of your audiences walk away with from this? And what do you hope they walk away with from it? In large, Nick, what I hope... Um, people take away most more than anything else is that there's actually something that they individually can do for this issue and should do. And I think the other thing I would say too, is that extends also to their local church. And I believe everybody that's listening to this, listen, your local church can do something about this and they should. And if enough local churches and enough individuals, um, you know, kind of put their foot down and go, enough. I'm tired of sitting this one out. I'm tired of hoping that a certain person gets elected um, so that abortion will go away. I would challenge them to say, listen, this is a issue. This is an issue that you yourself and your local church can make a massive difference in for the good. Um, As long as they understand that, that there is a woman who's a human being behind that abortion, that if you can work in the life of that woman, then you can save a life. In fact, you could save two. And, and that's what I want the listener to walk away from uh, on this program is, is don't, 
don't, ref, you know, don't, don't limit yourself to thinking that all you are in this situation is another person that will vote for whoever will um, vow to fight against abortion in Washington, D.C. We're so much more than that. We're, we are disciples of Christ. We can, we can do this work through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we should. You know, what you're talking about, about what we can do as individuals, it's made me think something bad. Like I said, my parents got me Final Fantasy 15, so I've been going through that, and it is incredibly realistic in many ways, driving around in a car and hearing news broadcasts about what an empire is doing, and you see all their airships and such flying overhead, and yet while you drive around, you see all these other people just driving by, you go to a restaurant scene, it's just people talking there, having regular chit-chat and such, and of course that's going to go on, but it left me think, isn't this what the real world is like? And I'll go out and I'll go to a grocery store or something, I'll see all these people and think, why do these people think they're here, really? I mean, are you living your life just so you can get married and have children and pass on your, your DNA to the next generation through them and raise up enough money so they can go to college and they can do the exact same thing that you're doing or you are living for something more or finding that you know there has to be something out there in this world that I can do or are you just listening to the newscast going on about all the things up in the world saying well that's terrible I wish I could do something about it and then turning on the TV I agree I 100% agree, and in fact, uh, Nick, that's part of my personal testimony. There is no way that I'm the ideal advocate for this issue, um, and I would have told you the same t- same thing six years ago. I I am ill-equipped personally to to be a, a person who who picks up the mantle for this for this thing for this topic. But um, I think that's the beauty of the gospel, and, and you know, I I am not an author. I know that's part of the bio, but but really, what I am is an individual who loves Jesus, who felt deep inside of him that God was calling him to write a work of fiction on this issue. And that's what my book, I'm Not Real, is. It's a, it's a work of fiction. It's not, it's not historical. It's not something that has specifically happened. It is based in Wichita, and it does revolve around um, three people and their decision to or to not abort. And it really, at the end of the day, um, exists for people to understand that they cannot deny the humanity of the unborn children that are aborted. And they cannot deny the fact that the individuals that get abortions um, are human beings that at the end of the day, what they really need is help. And you're right, Nick. I did not think I was even a person that had anything to contribute to this issue. Um, And yet because of the work of the Lord in my life, there's a book now with my name on it. And, um, I, I really don't care to move books. It's not really my concern that, that every listener go out and buy it. But I will say that the presence of the book exists to advocate for all the things you and I have talked about for about the last 90 minutes, which is just we can get involved. There is stuff that we can do. And this is certainly a topic that our Lord cares about. And I think we have a role to play in honoring him through that. You know, I've never been one really to want to sit on the sidelines of life. And maybe it is part going from a gaming generation where I want my life to be an adventure. <clears throat> and <clears throat> when I'm thinking about how all this takes place in our world, and say, so, you know, when people tell me there's really nothing they can do in the church fair, they're not really making a statement just about themselves. They're making a statement about God. 
They're saying, God is incapable of using me. He doesn't have a power, or he doesn't know how, or he made a mistake with me. And when you limit yourself in many ways, what you can do, you're limiting God. I mean, sure, no one's telling you to go out there and do everything that there is to be done. But just because you can't do everything, it doesn't mean you can't do something. I agree. So, when we're talking to these women who come for these abortions, and they often feel pressured and such, what kind of things should we be saying? And I'm thinking we shouldn't start by saying things. We should probably more start by listening and then asking things. Well, I think number one, even taking a step back from that, Nick, is I think we begin by um, asking the Lord for discernment, right? Um, Help me discern the situation I'm currently in, right? Um, So that we properly understand where we stand with this issue, right? So like, for instance, um, if this is a situation where you're engaging with a total stranger, then your lead into the question is probably the way God wants you to begin, right? I think it starts with, you know, listening, um, discovering who this person is, hearing their story, right? Um, And really establishing trust and, um, you know, projecting as somebody who will listen and and could possibly help, right, and actually cares about that that person's life, I don't think you can begin any other way. And And from there, I think, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, and from there, I think it begins the task of becoming such an active presence in the life of this individual um, that they really don't feel like they would make a decision without first addressing it with you. And from there, that's when an individual really has the opportunity to positively impact not only the life of the woman, but also the life of the child, where you are now essential enough that you could be one of those people that 82% of the women said, I just need one person to encourage me to keep this child. Now, where we normally hit a hurdle in this dialogue right now, Nick, is when a person realizes, well, wait a second, Ty, Nick, that sounds a lot like work, right? Like I might actually have to sacrifice some time mm-hmm. and a bit of my lifestyle so that this is a, so that this is possible. And that unfortunately is normally where we get off the rails because that's absolutely true. Um, in order to become um, valuable enough in the life of a woman for her to consider talking about this issue with you, you have to first be essential to them. You have to, you have to sacrifice your time. You have to sacrifice your energy. You have to sacrifice your convenience so that this is an individual who feels comfortable sharing these kind of things with you. Now that's not to say that you can't impact a total stranger, right? But I'm talking more about the day in and the, and the day out. Who are those at-risk people in your life? Who is that single girl who could really use your help? Um, Who are those girls in high school um, that maybe don't come from the best family? The kind of people that you can begin to pour into and prevent an abortion from even happening. Um, Those are the targets we need to look at, and we need to be prepared to act as much as possible. You know, when you were talking about how we need to work in sacrifice, I mean, people, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you could be driving down the road in your car or doing what awesome do, playing a game and listening. And such. So remember, this podcast came also because 
Someone did make a sacrifice. In fact, right now, two of us have made sacrifices. I mean, there are many, many other things that Ty could be doing right now. There are probably some other things he'd like to be doing right now. There are many other things I could be doing right now. And instead, I'm here producing a show because I think it needs to be done. And there are times that I would much rather be doing something fun and frivolous than, say, reading a book and studying. But I do it anyway because I need to be ready for the kingdom. And it, it, it is worth it. And if, if things matter to you, you're going to do the work that's needed to get those things that matter. You know, say, the projects ministry does matter to me. And while abortion does matter, a guy can't specialize in everything. I've chosen my specialty to be in areas like the resurrection and such. But since this matters, I call on people like Ty and others who have been on the show who have done that study so we can help one another out. But if the kingdom of God matters to you, if being a good Christian matters to you, you're going to put forward some work. And if you're not willing to put forward some work, then... I can just be question if it matters to you. Well, Nick, if you don't mind, I, I'd, I'd love at this time to kind of give um, the viewers, or not the viewers, the listeners, kind of a story into my life, because I, I want to make sure that I, I found a bit of um, humanity in, into my um, contribution here today, because, um, because here's the deal. At the end of the day, um, your involvement in this, in, in this task of making a difference for the topic of abortion might not be, you know, like a helicopter lifting off, right? Like straight vertical from here on out. I am, I am going to make a difference in this debate because that wasn't my story. In fact, I'll kind of give you the last six years of my life. So in 2009 was when Dr. George Tiller um, was shot down in his church. I remember feeling so convicted about what was going on in the town. And, and it was actually that summer that, that God actually gave me the title for, for my novel. I'm not real. And so for the next two years, I actually didn't write a single word of that book. But whenever the topic of abortion came up, I told people I was working on a book on abortion, right? And so I didn't actually start writing anything, but I was telling people that I did, right? Mm -hmm. right. And then in 2011, um, I got hired as the student's pastor at that same church in Wichita that I had interned at. And I was going on my first missions trip. It was a couple months after the Joplin tornado. We were driving into Missouri. And there was a girl um, that was helping with my youth who um, had just started helping with the youth. And I was single, she was single. And I thought, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to see if I can't date this girl. Um, here in a few minutes, you'll see that that wasn't a great idea. But um, I knew that this girl was from Texas and that she was adopted. And so I was kind of doing the math and thinking, girl from Texas, adopted, this girl's probably pro-life. And so I decided that as I flirt with her, I'm going to use this book I'm supposedly writing as a reason to, you know, get her to think I'm awesome. And so I start telling her, you know, hey, you know, so you're, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing, you're, uh, you're from Texas and, and you were adopted. You probably care a lot about pro-life. And she's like, oh, yes, you know, I, I might not have existed if my wife had, or if my mom hadn't decided to have me. And I'm like, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm writing a book on that issue. And I started to talk about this book I was supposedly going to write when the guy that was driving the van was a guy by the name of David and um, David and I had just met on this trip um, and we'd become really good friends. 
and he was he was an adult whose daughter was on the trip and and I started to describe this book I was supposedly going to write and, and he looks at me and he goes Ty I know what you're doing stop and I'm like what do you mean what am I doing he's like that book you're talking about it already exists I've read it so quit quit acting like you're writing this book and trying to impress this girl uh, that book already exists and I go awesome because personally that meant I didn't have to write it anymore because it was already in existence. And so I was actually kind of relieved, but then this girl kind of said, well, tell me more about this book you were going to write. And so I kept talking about the plot and what I had planned to do. And then Dave got really upset. And he's like, dude, Ty, you went to grad school. Okay. There's a word for what you're talking about. It's called plagiarism. You know that you didn't write this book. You need to quit talking about it. And so the van got kind of quiet. And I'm like, all right, I'll quit talking about it. A couple minutes go by and the girl, um, a couple rows back, one of the kids in my youth group asked, well, what were you going to name the book? What was it, what was it going to be called? And I said, I was going to call it, I'm not real. And van about, and David about wrecked the van. I mean, literally about drove it off the road. He kind of freaked out. We finally got in between the lines again. And I said, David, what is the matter with you? And he said, it just dawned on me why I thought I had read this book. Ty, when you got hired back in May and I saw you um, up on stage and they were introducing you, that night I had a dream that you wrote a book on abortion called I'm Not Real and you were talking about how it got published. Oh, wow. And the van got really quiet. And the girl that I was flirting with was like, well, I guess you have to write it now. So this is normally when I ask the people that I'm talking to, so what did I do next? And the good Christian would write the book, but instead I dated the girl for nine months. And then it ended very badly because it probably shouldn't have happened. And Nick, I got into a really bad place. It was a dark place. I was very bummed out. I thought this was the girl I was going to marry. Um, and it wasn't until I got to this really sad sort of static place in my life where I really wasn't doing anything um, that God really spoke to me. And it was basically, hey, listen, you can either feel sorry for yourself or you can do what you've been avoiding for years. And it wasn't until that really lonely sad place in my life that I actually got serious about writing this book. It was about 2011 or so. And for the next two years, because I'm not an author, it took me two years. I wrote this book, wrote this book, wrote this book. And when I finally finished it in 2013, it was my fiance who I'm now married to who helped me finish it. And then after that, it took another two years to find a publisher. And so I tell this to the audience to say, guys, girls, um, this is not necessarily a situation in your life where you're going to immediately and 100% be faithful to the task. Uh, but we serve a really patient, generous God. Um, and I would just, I would just um, commend you to, to continually um, lean in in the Lord and see what you can do in that moment. And I promise you, even through your imperfection, God has, God has got more than enough power to do something really great through your life. And I promise you that the more you do for him, um, you won't get an inflated sense of self. Um, you'll be really humbled by the fact that God was able to do anything through you. I know that's how I feel right now. Um, and, and it's really an honor to be on your, on your podcast, Nick, and, and get another opportunity to talk about this debate. Because I promise you, this is a classic example of the Lord dragging somebody into obedience. Mm. Yeah, I, I can kind of relate in some ways. I've got a few books in me in session. Like I said, I write something about marriage, usually on my Facebook page and such, and so many people have said, oh, this, this is so good. You need to write a book. Right? Yeah, okay. And, you know, it, it's still just, you know, <laughs> sitting down 
in actually doing it one day because I've talked to like I've written my my post, my blog, I've done this, I've done that. I want to take a break some right now, and every now I've been just squeezing in the time to do some other writing and such. But I mean, what I tell people is, don't worry about the impact of what you're doing and such as much. I mean, leave that to God. Just say. What's the right thing to do? What can I do? And do it. And let it come back to God. I 100% agree. The thing is, so many about Christians today, they think uh, they can't do anything. So, what do they wind up doing? Nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I can personally attest to that, um, which is why I encourage the listeners to... Um, um, ask the Lord um, a very simple but scary prayer, which is, Lord, what would you have me do? And when you get clarity on that, um, have as much human courage as you can to start to pursue it. Um, I can't guarantee you what's going to become of it, but I promise you that, that, that if the Lord is behind it, um, you'll be glorifying him, which is really all that matters. And so um, whether it's the, the discussion of abortion or whether it's something else, um, I encourage the listeners um, to ask that simple question, Lord, what would you have me do? Because um, there are so many women out there, um, friends listening, that, that, that really, truly need um, someone who um, Christ is working through to impact their life. Um, there are unborn children who really need someone who Christ is working through to make an impression um, on their life and also on the life of their would-be mother. That This is such a pervasive issue. And the more Christians who ask that simple and bold prayer, what would you have me do, Lord, can make, I promise you, a humongous difference in our world and in our culture. You know, I'm thinking back that when I went to Bible college, was getting ready to go and such, you know, this is just the way I think and such. I went to vote for rehab because I have Asperger's. And so since I was special needs, they could cover my college education up to a bachelor's, which was really good because my parents didn't have a lot of money and they wanted me to get a college education. They said, I was, they said, you're very smart. You know what you're doing. You need to go to college. And I wanted to go into ministry. And the people there who were testing me for vocal rehab and such, she said, you know what? You're so smart. You should go into something like engineering instead because if you're in ministry, you're not going to be able to handle public speaking where you are. And, you know, no offense to engineers. I'm thankful they're out there, but engineering just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I said, nope, I want to do ministry. And I often wish that they would have been there when I gave my senior sermon to the entire student body and all the professors there, which had been well over a thousand people. And I wasn't a bit nervous about it. I loved doing it. I mean, at this point, I've got to fill in for William Lane Craig's class, which is quite a humbling thing to think about. And the reason is because I refuse to have some people look at me and say, you can't do this. And whenever they say that, there's a problem who's just, can you know, kind of leans back and says, okay, watch me. There's nothing more rewarding um, than doing more than you expect you could, you yourself could do or, or more than someone else suspects you can do. Uh, surprising yourself is always a, a really great venture. 
Um, it sounds like you have personally enjoyed that. I have as well. And again, I just really commend that to our audience too. I mean, guys, girls, the more you can, the more you can surprise yourself and, and surprise others, the better. Yeah. I mean, this, this podcast, it's, it's a labor of love. Most of the books that are on here, the huge majority, I've been reading them throughout the weekend. I, I'm reading books preparing for shows that are coming up in February and March and beyond. I go and I order books, I contact offers and say, hey, would you like to send me a book for a show and such? And my to-read list right now is extensive. There are other things I could be doing for time and such, but I mean, of course, I'm not saying you spend all your time in work and such. No, you have to spend time for yourself, time for your family and such, but these are major issues going on. Abortion is one of those issues, and there are lives at stake. There are women whose lives could be forever damaged by us. There are babies who could die. And let's not forget, we talk so much about women who are damaged. There are men who are hurt by abortion as well, and men who have to live the consequences of women, and we dare not diminish them either. You're right. They are, uh, in a lot of ways, neglected on this topic, um, simply because the sheer number of women is so much more. But you're right. There are plenty of men out there um, to whom this is also a struggle. And I would also add, since we're on the, the, the quick topic here of addressing things we might have missed um, earlier in the, in the podcast, I would also say that there are a great deal of you out there um, also who, who aren't necessarily in an urban environment. Okay, this is largely an urban issue. Okay, um, there's a lot of data that supports that, more than it is a rural issue. Nevertheless, if you are in a rural setting, um, that does not mean this is an issue um, that you can't make a positive difference on. Um, so I want you to keep that in mind. Um, there's always something you can do. In fact, one of the beauties of our Lord is that he routinely uses people that no one would expect. Right. And so if you find yourself kind of on the, the margins, as you would see on this particular issue, that does not mean um, that you don't have a major role to play because you very well could. Yeah. One of my favorite passages is in fact, in first Corinthians, where it talks about God uses the weak to shame the strong and, that which the world calls shameful and dishonorable, that's exactly the kind of person he likes to use. A person who thinks they can do absolutely nothing and such, that's the kind of person my God wants to look and say, yep, you're right, by your own you can do absolutely nothing. Now let me handle you, and you will do something absolutely amazing. I agree. Now, let's also ask one other thing. For a woman who has had this experience and gone through an abortion already, what can we do to help her? Well, I mean, here's, here's what I want that listener to understand. Um, that's actually one of the major things. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to peddle books here. I'm really not. But the only way I can talk about this is to talk about my novel. Um, when I first set out, this is actually in the, um, the foreword to my book um, before I, you know, my author's note, before I get into the actual content of the book. Um, when I first sat down to write my novel, um, I thought the only reason I was writing it was to bring humanity to the unborn. That's actually why the title of the book is I'm Not Real. It's the idea um, that every single child that's ever been aborted is a human being um, loved by Christ, right? Um, in eternal existence, okay? That is a fact um, to the Christian. 
Um, however, as I began to write this book, it became abundantly clear to me, um, and I think this is the way the Lord ministered to me through the process, that the women and men who are involved in these abortions matter just as much to Christ as the children who were aborted. And you can't, it kind of gets back to what we talked about earlier. You cannot talk about abortion without talking about the individuals that go through them. And so what I would tell the individuals that have been a part of an abortion or, or been complicit in one is that that does not have to define your life. In fact, if the Bible tells us anything, it's that um, one particular sin of any individual doesn't have to define their life. And so there can be healing um, through that process. Um, we serve a God of immense mercy, immense patience, immense grace. Um, do not let this topic turn you away from Christ. Don't let this topic turn you away from the Christian community. Um, there's a lot of healing that can be done. In fact, I would argue that, that that's exactly what Jesus wants for that person. Mm -hmm. Well, Ty, it's been an interesting time, but we're getting to the end of it here, unfortunately. It's been a very interesting two hours, and I hope people got a lot out of it. Um, if people want to find out more about you and your work and such, do you have a blog, website, and email, where people can get in touch with you? Um, yes, I actually have a website. I'm not realbook.com. Okay. So, and then, so that's the, that's the website where they can um, get a lot of information on, on my, on my novel. Um, if they want to reach me personally, um, my email is ty at I'm not realbook.com. Now, I've gone and looked on Amazon here. I, I think it's very interesting that your book is actually. The hardcover format is apparently eight eighty five, and the Kindle version is nineteen ninety nine. It's very rare that the Kindle version is the more expensive version, but it's rare if someone wants to get it. You know, I actually asked my publisher about that, and and one of the things that I've, that I've learned through this process of of having the first book published is that the minute that a publisher agrees to partner with Amazon, Amazon can charge whatever prices they want. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really fascinating. I, I check um, the progress of my book about once or twice a month and I'll hop on there and it's amazing. You know, the price is always fluctuating. Um, so I can't even tell you what it's going to go for from day to day. I'm glad to hear it's in the $8 range. I think it was $10 last week. Um, but regardless, um, unfortunately, yes, the hard book, the hard is way easier to access than the Kindle. Um, but we do have both available for anybody that might want it. And do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave for a deeper waters audience? You know, it's just the same as what we started with, Nick. I just want to encourage um, anybody who, who calls upon Jesus as their Lord to understand um, that they can play a major role in this, um, in this topic, that um, their role will undoubtedly include not only the unborn life, but also the woman carrying it. Um, and mainly, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's been great to have you on. And yeah, I'm going to get some people on who the world might not have heard as much of them to, because, I mean, that's what people did for me as well, so I'm just paying it forward a bit. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. I would love that. Thank you, Nick. And I can mind it when next week when I have Elijah Thompson, also from a Christian Projects Alliance, coming on. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.